football is back, and Domino's Hawaii couldn't be more excited. Our community has been through a lot this year, and so to show our appreciation for all your efforts and sacrifice, we'd like to do our part in helping you enjoy the games by offering large specialty pizzas for $15.99 and our new buffalo wings for $5.99. Just log on to the Domino's Hawaii website or app, and remember, while you watch your favorite team, you can be assured that our team continues to make your health and safety a top priority. Hey, what's up, Jordan? How's it going, man? Great job doing the podcast last week with our boys, Billy Hall and Brian McInnes. You guys did a great job. Made me feel very limited as far as my necessity to be around. Like, I felt very unneeded uh, listening to that podcast because it was so good. Well, we've already established from, like, the very first episode of this show that we are as non-essential as, <laughs> as it can get on the spectrum of essential workers, uh, which has been the buzzword, right, throughout the pandemic. Uh, not to get too flippant about it, but no, we missed you. We missed you, and I, and I think it just sits the table, because we we've we've been fortunate enough to make some good friends in this business yeah. and and whatnot over the years. That uh, you know, I think we'll we'll probably just have to go uh, four ways on a on a megapod at some point and just get both Billy and Brian and the both of us and uh, just it'll probably devolve into just nonsense, but it'll sure. be uh, wildly entertaining for us for other people. Who knows? All right, let's warm things up as we like to do. This is episode number 53. What is your New Year's resolution? Do you, do you have any? Are you like a resolution guy here as we enter 2021? I, I am not a resolution guy in particular, mainly because in years past where I have tried to resolve to do something, uh, it, it usually just evaporates very quickly. And so why set myself up for disappointment, right? Why set myself up for failure when it comes to something like this. But I think for this year, I, I've sort of vowed to be a little more optimistic. I think we've been worn down by, say, you know, the last several years, the last 12 months or so. Uh, I think understandably for a lot of people, right? There, there are all kinds of things going on in the world in our current climate. So I've sort of vowed to just have a, maybe a little more rosy outlook on life on the same token, trying to, trying to get outside a little bit more, maybe golf a little bit more, do some mm. outdoorsy activities, right? I think we've been cooped up for a long time. So that's kind of where I'm at, you know, maybe just trying to not only look at things with a little more sunshine, but also trying to get a little more sunshine. Yeah, that's actually a really great one. Uh, I, I find it funny. Resolutions, oftentimes they involve people that are quitting something, right? Like they're removing something like, all right, I'm going to eat less fast food or I'm going to cut out sweets or something like that. Uh, I actually want to do my part, just like you, be a little more optimistic, but also do my part to help some of the people that struggled due to the pandemic in 2020. Small businesses like bars and lounges who haven't been able to compensate for some of the financial loss that they experienced. And so I think I'm going to try to add more drinking, like more of that kind of imbibing to help my fellow brethren and some of the small businesses out there. I just, you know, we can all do our little part. If you need help, I, I'm, I, if you need a sponsor or somebody to, you know, to, to help you reach some of these goals, because yeah, I'm with you, positive thinking, right? We, we want right. to accomplish something. We don't want to eliminate something. We want to accomplish something. And uh, if it's, it's supporting small business, I'm all for it. 
Yeah, not to mention, I also want to try to golf a little more frequently. And uh, I ain't golfing if I'm not uh, having a few with the bros. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not out there to shoot a low score. I'm not that competitive. I'm clearly not that good at it. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, that's another reason uh, that I should add that to my resolution list. All right, we welcome you once again to episode 53. Uh, We're going to have Alex Urban, Century Tournament of Champions Executive Director. Uh, it was a strange event, maybe the most unique in the history of that fantastic tournament that takes place annually at the beginning of the year at Kapalua Plantation Course. Uh, and Alex Urban, who had to run the show here uh, without the massive crowds that they usually anticipate, uh, without some of the uh, revolving atmosphere that is usually present in Kapalua. To be able to put this thing on, and it ended up being another fantastic event. It looked terrific on television. They had uh, beautiful vistas, beautiful weather for the most part, uh, and it was a competitive star-laced field. Uh, I thought that uh, Alex Urban deserves a little bit of a golf clap applause because of the fact that they got this thing on uh, in the first place. And so uh, we're going to have Alex Urban on and he can, uh, you know, peacock a little bit. Maybe uh, he can, uh, you know, just just celebrate along with us the fact that they were able to get this thing off the ground this year. Yeah, kudos to him. Kudos to everybody involved. The tournament uh, still doing a lot of their charitable efforts for the local community here in, in Maui County. The the competition was terrific, right? I mean, guys were shooting low scores. The, the minimal wins helped that out for sure. You had a playoff. Uh, the, the vistas were incredible. It almost opened things up a little bit, right, without some of the big crowds out there. So you really get just a true sense of the beauty of the area. And, yeah, it was, it was top-notch all the way around. And then uh, a little playoff, playoff golf to finish it off. You, you never go wrong with that. All right, with that said, let's get into our game time. And we have UH Manoa football to be held in Manoa. It was announced this week that the University of Hawaii would be moving forward with plans to hold its home football games on Clarence T.C. Ching Field on the lower campus for at least the next three years, as long as it takes to build a new stadium. So maybe we're talking 10 years with the track record of major uh, construction projects here in the islands. But the plan includes expanding the bleacher and seating area, installing new turf, a new scoreboard, among other aesthetic changes. This, of course, is in response to the previous announcement that Aloha Stadium was effectively shutting down due to financial and public safety issues. So what do you think of the prospect here of on-campus football in Manoa? This doesn't necessarily X out the potential of Maui hosting some UH football games uh, at War Memorial Stadium. Uh, Certainly, I think that's something that UH should still consider as far as community outreach is concerned and trying to expand the fan base. Uh, But that said... True on-campus football does have the potential to be pretty good. It will be limited, obviously, in terms of size and scale. What do you make of it? Yeah, I I concur. I think of all the ideas that were sort of thrown out, right, Um, whether it was coming here to Maui, uh, where I'm at currently as we record this thing and playing at War Memorial, uh, I still think is a viable option for for a game or two a season or or mix in every other year or something like that. I, I still think that's that's awesome. I, st- I still think they should explore playing, you know, a neutral site game every year or something like that in Las Vegas. Go get a big Pac-12 team or something to go ahead and meet you in Las Vegas because we know of the following that the University of Hawaii has when they play in the Ninth Island. But of all those options, playing on campus was by far, by far the best option. If they could pull it off, this was ideal case scenario. No doubt about it. As much as I would love for the team to come over to Maui and play six games or something like that at War Memorial Stadium, look, playing on campus trumps everything, right? The fact that you can have kids walk to the game, the fact that you can have this 
on-campus type atmosphere. And yeah, you lose a little bit maybe when it comes to the parking of Aloha Stadium or the, the accessibility. But you know what? The stadium's not going to be 50,000 seats on campus. They've already sold out the Stan Sheriff Center on numerous occasions, especially the last few years, right, with the men's volleyball program. And so the possibilities there, right, it's going to take some imagining. It's going to take some work and some legwork. And I think that was always the big skepticism. It's like, okay, are, is the, the university, is the state going to pony up a lot of this money to get it done? And it sounds like, you know, the University of Hawaii is indeed committed to go ahead and make that happen. And if they can expand this thing, right, and, and there's room for it. And if you can get it up into double digits in terms of the thousands, and we talked to Rob DeMello at the end of last month, uh, kind of the possibilities that that exists there, right, to, to create this intimate atmosphere, to create this on-campus type atmosphere, the possibilities that exist with Les Murakami Stadium, right, hanging out the, the Diamond Head end zone. And you can set up, uh, you know, hospitality areas and things like that on the concourse on the backside of Les Murakami Stadium. You know, the, the offices that exist in the Stan Scherf Center, you know, could that be vantage points to view things? The parking structure, right, the top of that, can that be a, a you know, a, a, a beer garden or something where you can, you can see down, right? And, and those aren't bad vantage points. It's not like you're far from the field from any of those locales. And so I think it's, it, it's exciting for sure. I, I really think it is. Um, the possibilities that exist and how creative you can get in creating this very unique fan experience and something that the University of Hawaii really has never had the opportunity to, to keep things on campus, the opportunity to keep revenue on campus when it comes to beverage sales, when it comes to food sales, when it comes to parking and all of that kind of stuff that they basically lost out on by being a tenant of another state facility at Aloha Stadium is best case scenario. Absolutely. It's going to take some work to pull off, as we mentioned, and that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because I'm with you, right? Who knows when the new Aloha Stadium is going to be built? It's going to be some time. And I very certain that the University of Hawaii Brass understands that fully, right? I don't think they're counting on that stadium being built right away either. And so they, they've got a plan, and, I, and I, I'm excited for it. I'd probably have to hang out at the top of the parking structure in that beer garden because, you know, New Year's resolution. But anyway, I agree with you. I, I think that it's, it's, it's probably the, the best decision and option under the circumstances. And I think a lot of it has to do with just branding, right? Branding of your program. Uh, this thing uh, starts to leak into a lot of different areas surrounding your program. And one of them is also recruiting. And if you are playing your games at high school fields, that's going to be a tough sell here for the next three years or so as far as trying to lure top-notch or as, as top-level recruits as you possibly can. Um, you have also just the branding in terms of, of how the fan base perceives you as a program and how seriously they take you. And again, if you're playing at high school facilities, I think you run the risk of, of limiting first off the amount of people that can attend the games. Uh, and so I think you run the risk of, of alienating, uh, you know, dare I say marginalizing a lot of your fan base and they're still going to run into those challenges uh, even if they're able to build out the stands at Ching Field but you have other resources as you were alluding to heck maybe you open up the stand sheriff center and you can have people that purchase tickets to sit in there and watch the game on, on the big screen in there and sort of have a game viewing party and experience with some cheerleaders and band members or whatever inside the arena I mean you can do things like that right very out of the box I, I really kind of can't stand that cliche, but really kind of out of the box, everything is on the table uh, type of thinking. And who knows, maybe this becomes the first steps in really taking that kind of, of expansion of that area 
amid the lower campus, surrounded by all these other athletic facilities. Maybe these are the steps that, that lead the university to take that even more seriously. And maybe they, they think after, if they can build out the stands to be able to see, you know, anywhere between 10 and 15,000 people. And, and if the response is that good, and if the students come out in mass, which is something that has, you know, not ever regularly happened for the University of Hawaii because of the games being held at Aloha Stadium in Halava, if you get that kind of, of student buy-in and that kind of student presence, maybe this convinces the University of Hawaii to say, hey, look, maybe we just keep expanding it out. Maybe we try to get it to where we can fit 25 to 30, dare I say 35,000 people there. And hey, look, parking's going to suck. <laughs> like It's just going to be no question. Parking will suck. And you're going to have to come up with other ideas, maybe shuttles from other adjacent parking areas or, or fields that you can use and rent as parking areas and people can make their way to the game. But that's how it is in a lot of college football towns. Uh, and so I think that you have some opportunities here to look at. And boy, would that be an incredible sort of thumbing of the nose at the state of Hawaii, right? And, and, and this tug of war that has occurred over who benefits most from the revenue generated at Aloha Stadium. This state entity, the, the, the stadium authority run stadium state entity, or the University of Hawaii, another state entity. That weird tug of war that has taken place over decades, that would be quite the thumbing of the nose uh, for UH to be able to say, you know what, never mind, we're good. We got our own facility. It's on campus. All that revenue, all that money, all of that is ours. Like that would be kind of extraordinary. I'm probably pushing the limits of ambition here with regard to something like this. Uh, but I feel like if you're going to be taking these kinds of drastic steps to try to salvage the, the location uh, where your football team plays its games, uh, and it's on campus, heck, you know, maybe if you're going to think that outside of the box, maybe we just push the envelope as far as we can. That, that was going to be my question for you, because that's where I went as well. I said, what if this is a massive success? What if they bring people out, right? What if the student experience is a, a, everything that they could have hoped for, and you're drawing 10,000, you're drawing 15,000, and who knows, again, how long that stadium takes to get built in Halava on that, on that Aloha Stadium footprint. Do they... Do they just make this their permanent home? Or at, le at the very least, does this set up a very realistic possibility that you play half of your home games there or, or a number of your home games, majority of your home games there, you know, and, and say, hey, look, you've got a big conference game coming up. Boise's coming to town and, and you know, everything's going according to plan, right? And you're tops of the conference or something like that. And, and maybe you want to go play at the new 35,000 seat new Aloha Stadium or, or say, you know, you schedule USC, right? Teams that have come down in the past, some of the big, the big programs, Oregon, somebody like that comes down. You're like, okay, maybe, maybe some of those games we want to put in the big stadium, right? That, that's, we go play two, three games there a year or something like that. Maybe the bowl game is still hosted there, things of that nature at, at the new Aloha Stadium. But, but what's, if this goes well, right? Wouldn't it make a lot of sense? 15, 20,000 or however many people they can shoehorn in there, right? If it goes according to plan. You know, if New Mexico comes to town, San Jose State, no disrespect to the Spartans, you know, conference champs, you know, schools like that, right? I mean, we're always got a home and home with New Mexico State coming up here pretty soon. Doesn't that make sense to kind of hold on campus and, and you get some of these marquee opponents, right? Uh, we'd love to have the big names every week, but this is not the nature of the schedule, right? We, we all know that's the reality. And so I mean, if you're playing 75% of your games on campus, you're having all that revenue, you're getting the atmosphere, and then you get the buy-in, right? You, you, you build the program up because a lot of this is building fan equity, 
right? We've talked about that. We talked about some of the struggles when it comes to, to television pay-per-view, right? And whether that kind of is positive or negative when it comes to fan equity. But if you get that, then it's like, okay, yeah, maybe we need 10,000 more people. Boom. We just move it over to the new Aloha stadium or something like that. I, I'm excited for the possibilities. Like this is sort of field of dreams esque, right? It's not a blank canvas that they get to sort of work with in Manoa there, you know, at, at Ching formerly cook field, but it's, it kind of feels like it. It feels like they can really get creative with this thing, you know, and, and really go ahead and, and sort of make this how they want it and, and, and try and cater to the fans and the students that they're trying to, right? As opposed to trying to make those people fit into the canvas of Aloha Stadium. You've got this very fa- real fan base in mind where you can sort of create your field of dreams there on, on lower campus. I, I'm excited. When, when I saw that they were going to go ahead and do this, I thought it, it made the most sense in the fact that they're committing to doing it, right? Putting some of the money in. Uh, it's going to cost money, but I, I think they can make this into something pretty special. All right, so we switch over to a program that will never really run into these issues as far as trying to uh, find the scratch and resources uh, for its facilities, and that's Alabama. The Alabama football program did it again. Saban's sixth. Alabama cleaned the clock of Ohio State in the college football playoff national championship game on Monday, 52-24. The game was held in Miami. Bama completed a 13-0 season, perhaps the strangest college football season of all time. And it was Saban's sixth title in Tuscaloosa, seventh overall. Remember, he had that one while he was head coach at LSU. Heisman Trophy winner Devontae Smith went bananas. He, of course, was the guy on the receiving end of Tua Tonga-Vailoa's heroic pass in the title game three years ago, recorded 12 catches for 215 yards and three scores. The guy was an absolute beast. Najee Harris running back at 158 yards from scrimmage and three touchdowns. And quarterback Mac Jones sort of quietly under the radar. I know he was a Heisman Trophy finalist, but no one ever really took his candidacy that seriously. But this guy put together one of the greatest quarterback seasons, perhaps the greatest, in college football history. Threw for a CFP title game record, 464 yards and five touchdowns. And in the process, quietly set a new single-season standard for passer efficiency, a mind-blowing 203. So I ask you, Jordan, what stands out to you most about this Alabama team this season? Just how dominant they were. And they weren't necessarily dominant on defense throughout like we've seen with past Alabama teams, right? They gave up 40-plus to Ole Miss and – and Texas throughout, excuse me, Florida throughout some of these games and, and Texas A&M, you know, maybe we, we, we thought they didn't deserve a shot because they got blown out by, by Alabama, but they were as close as anybody in the college football playoff. And so this, this Alabama team, just how dominant they were, and we've seen Alabama teams loaded with talent, right? But for them to do this in a year where everything was unpredictable, whether it was player availability, the fact that you, whether you're going to even play a game by the end of the week, how many games you were going to get to play. Um, it speaks to the depth of their talent for sure, right? Being able to overcome some of that and some of the uncertainty with this team, but just how, how fluid they were, how week to week consistent they were, and just how dominant and offensive heavy they were. And it's not like they don't have dudes on defense. They got dudes on defense. They got first rounders on defense. There's no doubt about that, but this isn't, but Nick Saban's won title games, what, nine to six, that LSU game, 
And now Nick Saban's teams are all of a sudden like some of the greatest offensive teams in the history of college football. This evolution of Nick Saban to me has just been fascinating to watch unfold, right? And a lot of it started with Tua and the fact that he started bringing in some of these dudes who weren't just game managers, guys who actually could go out and spin the ball and put up big points and started to open his eyes, right? Bringing in guys like Lane Kiffin, his offensive coordinator, transitioning over the years back to Steve Sarkeesian. And I thought Sark called a brilliant game on Monday. Um, he was scheming guys like Devonte Smith was wide open on a touchdown. Najee Harris was wide open on a touchdown reception. Like those are the two best guys in the field. And the fact that, you know, they were untouched on a couple of these touchdowns is just amazing. It's not like Ohio state wasn't ready for these guys. Right. And so that evolution, Nick Saban going from old school curmudgeon, we're going to run the ball. We're going to run the ball. We're going to play defense. We're going to run the ball some more. And then we'll play action every once in a while. Right. And we're going to, we're going to score 10 to 20 points. The other team's going to score three. We're going to beat you up. We're going to get out of there. We're going to win games. No doubt about it to now. Like they want, they score 50 points in the championship game. We're talking about this offense, maybe being better than LSU's offense yeah. a year ago, which I, I would still take LSU's offense last year, but that's, that's nothing against Alabama. Like the fact that that's a conversation, right? The fact that this Alabama program is now known for having multiple first model, first round wide receivers every year. The fact that we're talking about first round quarterbacks, like every year now for this Alabama program, we knew about the running backs. We knew about the offensive line, but this, this is a different Alabama team. And this is Nick Saban and he is brilliant, right? He's a, he's ahead of the curve. And it's like, you think the game's going to pass him by not at all, not at all. He's just going to, he's going to adapt. He's going to figure out what the modern game is. And, and the way you look at it, it's like, how do you, how do you even, there's no slowing this down, right? There's no slowing this down. They've got five stars coming in at every position. Um, and it's just, it's just amazing how he has evolved, how this program has evolved. And then throughout this year in singularity, how they, they were able to progress and, and complete this thing, all SEC schedule and then Notre Dame and, and Ohio State. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, and that's why I think that I would suggest Nick Saban, who now is officially tied with Paul Bear Bryant for the most national championships by a major college football coach with seven total. Uh, that's why I consider him already the GOAT even though they're tied in that category. And that's because he's doing it in this modern day era of college football, uh, where there is so much more of a competitive race in terms of recruiting. It's now a 24 seven endeavor. There's so much more in terms of the arms race of building out facilities and resources. It strikes me and, and, and maybe this is recency biased or something. Uh, it seems to me that winning now in this day and age of college football is more difficult than it was in the past. And, and that's, that's just because of the evolution of the game. There are so many more great football players out there. And I think what stands out to me about this particular Alabama team is you look at Devontae Smith, he's basically a four-year guy. You look at Mac Jones, who was an Elite 11 finalist quarterback who decided to, even though Tua Tonga-Vailoa was committed to Bama, decided to go to the Crimson Tide program as well and just sort of waited, bided his time, and got an opportunity to go out there. And what did he do? He put together the most efficient season in the history of college football, at least you know since they've recorded the stat. And so uh, I think that, to be able to still scoop up all of that talent and have reserves in the tank. LSU put together a great season last year. And then what happened this year? They were depleted of all of that talent. What did Alabama do? They were using guys who were like second and third stringers two years ago, and they went on an undefeated national championship run. So to me, that really exposed 
the greatness of Nick Saban, that evolution that you're talking about, the ability to adjust and change to the kind of personnel and talent that he has, as well as the game of college football itself and follow that, be ahead of the curve or at least alongside the curve in terms of that evolution. Uh, that's why I think that uh, Nick Saban's the GOAT, man. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. It, it's harder now. Right. I mean, even when you're talking about Bear Bryant, you're talking about scholarship limitations that weren't a thing back then. Like you could you could just low, imagine if Nick Saban had an infinite amount of scholarships, like you give out 120 scholarships instead of just the 85 that he's limited to uh, when it comes to the current regulations in, in FBS level football. He'd have five to ten more of these dudes just running around out there uh, waiting their turn to get an opportunity like a Mac Jones. Right. And he's got, uh, you know, uh, was it Bryce Brown, the 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 five-star yeah. quarterback who's just waiting, who's just there as a true freshman who a lot of people thought was going to actually beat out Mac Jones uh, and, and to show you the kind of ability that he has, right? If people thought that he was going to be better than the dude who had a passer efficiency of over 200 this year, like he's the next guy that's just waiting here. So they, I, I'm with uh, Nick Saban's evolution, Nick Saban's um, ability to do this in the modern age, right? Where, where the, and, and, and look, Alabama's starting ahead of a lot of other programs when it comes to resources, funding and all those kinds of things. But, but the level of uh, competition spread out now is, is a lot different than in Bear Bryant's days. And, and just the, the evolution of the game, right, that we have talked about and, and Nick Saban being able to adapt to that, knowing that, hey, just, just playing defense wasn't going to – playing defense and conservative offense wasn't necessarily going to be the ticket to more national championships. He's, he's incredible. And, and I think throughout – this is kind of hard to do almost – uh, at least in my point of view, like I feel like he's become more likable. I don't know if likable is the word, but less unlikable. Like I feel like early on he was kind of like he seemed like the hardo, right? Like he he was he, he you couldn't relate to him much, and and he had some 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 stories coming out of Michigan State and LSU and and even the Dolphins when he was there. But I feel like now I don't know he's he's got more of a personality. I don't know if because he's older, he's a little more grandpa like or something like that. But I feel like he's almost more likable after just dominating for a decade and a half now, which seems seems um, counterintuitive. All right, so we switch gears, and really the day that we're recording this, Jordan, Wednesday, midweek, uh, the biggest sports story nationally, a blockbuster trade in the NBA, and it grants James Harden his wish to be dealt away from the Houston Rockets to the Brooklyn Nets. Now, this is a four-team trade and involved the Pacers and the Cavs. A whole ton of moving parts here, but the main component of this, obviously, is James Harden landing in Brooklyn and reuniting with Kevin Durant. He'll also team up with Kyrie Irving. And so the obvious sports guy question is, does this make the Brooklyn Nets, if they weren't already, the favorites to win the NBA championship? And what do you think about the fit here, Harden to Brooklyn? I don't think it makes them the, the, the favorite, right? And, and you'd have a good conversation, I think, even arguing, does this make them the favorite in the East? Does it make them the most talented, top-heavy team in the East? Yeah, probably. I still think, you know, uh, Miami's going to have a lot to say about it. Boston is going to have a lot to say about it. And, of course, Giannis in Milwaukee, like, Milwaukee is going to have a lot to say about it uh, when it all comes down to those Eastern Conference playoffs. I still have the Lakers, right? I, I, I still think even though now they're running into, you know, some, some slight injury knocks or something like that. Um, they're still, to me, the, the clear-cut favorite. Now, if this maximizes, right, if you can maximize Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden together, okay. But I think it's fair to say, myself and a whole lot of other people included, 
a bit skeptical, maybe a little <laughs> skeptical as to how this is all going to work, right? I mean, who, who's going to play third fiddle here? Who's willing to take a step back? Maybe it's Kyrie. Maybe he never comes back. Maybe, maybe he's just saying, I'm good with the season, right? He, he's sort of MIA right now in a way, uh, or at least AWOL, right? Uh, I don't know if they've really granted him the leave, but, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of out doing his own thing. Harden's got to get himself back to where he was as MVP caliber. Kevin Durant looks really good coming off of the Achilles injury, right? Tonight's the night he tests that back-to-back for the first time, really uh, playing in back-to-back games on back-to-back nights. And so there, there's still so many question marks about this team. They have committed fully to DeAndre Jordan as sort of their center right there, guy in the middle and trading away Jared Allen. And I think a lot of people around the team would say, Jared Allen's a better player <laughs> than DeAndre Jordan. But DeAndre Jordan happens to be boys with Durant and Kyrie. And so he starts, right? And, and all of a sudden, Jared Allen is expendable. And there's a guy who can maybe help when, you know, you're trying to defend the freak that is Giannis Antetokounmpo come playoff time. So it, it, it's – it's great. Like I was kind of hoping this was going to happen before the season. I was skeptical that it was going to happen during the season. It's happened. It makes for great conversation. They are now the most interesting team in the league. No doubt about it. It is exciting. Uh, It is fascinating because it will be very much a mystery as to what this thing is going to look like, not just in the very immediate future, but as you get into the later stages of the season and on into the playoffs, you know, what will this entity that is the Brooklyn Nets look like? You have three players in Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and James Harden now who are among the most ball-dominant players in the league, and they're all on the same team. And so there were already some questions as to whether or not Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant could sort of coexist, and I think they answered some of that early on, even though you're right, Kyrie Irving is going through some stuff right now, and we'll see exactly how that impacts the team. Uh, But it's going to be interesting to see how they introduce – and try to somehow get James Harden acclimated to that environment and whether or not that's going to mess up some of that juju. Uh, the Nets gave up some really talented players, some other guys who probably weren't necessary, uh, but they gave up uh, Karis LeVert, who is a really, really good piece, a really, really good player. You mentioned Jared Allen. Um, those are guys who I thought helped to create a depth that was of great value for the Brooklyn Nets, especially as you get into the postseason, maybe the games come a little bit more hard and heavy and fast and furious. And so that depth gets more tested. And so now you've cut down that depth to introduce a juggernaut scorer in James Harden on a team that already has juggernaut scoring individuals. So will it be worth it? That will be the question. And I guess we'll, uh, we'll find out. I, I, that just from a basketball standpoint, it's fascinating to see how this is going to work, how they're going to play, you know, tug of war and, and balance this thing on the seesaw. And then the fact that you've got three top 10 talents who also have to be three of the, the more eccentric guys in the league, right? Three of the biggest personalities for varying reasons, like even all of it combined, it's going to be great. It might be a massive failure. It also might be a massive success, but either way, it's going to be great. Is it me or is James Harden like not in great shape? I guess I've seen some social media stuff on this too, but like he's got a little bit of that like pot belly thing going. I'm not trying to body shame any NBA player, especially one as fantastic as James Harden, but it's probably not a good sign if he looks like the two of us on a basketball court uh, with that very tight around the waist jersey. It's like he looks a little more like James Hardy's. (laughs) All right, I got one more. He looks a little bit more like James Harden's arteries. (laughs) All right, that's all I have there. 
That is great. That is great. Yeah, no, when you start looking, when his jersey starts fitting like mine's does in the rec leagues, <laughs> where, where the, you know, side profile, it looks a little rotund. That's not, that's not really, it's not really where you want to go. That's yeah. not really where you want to go with it. And uh, yeah, James Harden's been looking a little bit like that. You know, to, in his defense, he's wearing like four warm up shirts before he finally gets down to just the tank top uni. But still, yeah, he's he been, he been, he been living good lately i think you know and and he was just waiting to get out of there in houston that's right with Harden there it'll be more like the cook Nets. all right it's time to move on all right time now for the dominoes hawaii main topping and that is our conversation with our guy alex urban he is the executive director of the century tournament of champions so let's get right to it uh and and start with the congratulating of alex and getting this event going in what was a very very challenging time Hey, Alex, what's up, man? Good to talk with you again. Uh, you are now a multiple-time guest here on the Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley podcast. I know it's a very high honor. It's, you know, I, 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 when, I sat at the, when I set my goals at the beginning of the year, um, yeah, it was right at the top of the list. I, I love being on with you guys. Yeah, we, we really enjoy talking with you, and thanks for always making yourself uh, so accessible and available for us. Uh, and we definitely wanted to talk with you uh, this week, a, a, an opportunity to, to sort of celebrate the fact that this tournament, the Century Tournament of Champions, was held at all under these very difficult and challenging circumstances. So first off, I want to congratulate you uh, in the fact that this thing was held, uh, not to mention it looked great on TV uh, I think in some ways, not having the fans there gave it, as as has been the case with a lot of other golf tournaments throughout the pandemic, you know, gave it just a little bit more of a uh, a pure, genuine feel in some respects. Uh, but what was your reaction to, as you look back on it now, you've had a few days to process, uh, what do you make of the Century Tournament of Champions in 2021? Yeah, it was it was an unbelievably unique, I mean, it was just a unique year. Uh, it's it's likely, hopefully, one will never see a, a version of this tournament like that again. Um, obviously, due to all the challenges that everyone faces, and uh, I think the thing, my biggest takeaway is just how um, how well our team functioned uh, from top to bottom in terms of making it happen. And I'm talking all the way from the PGA Tour uh, and working with health officials and local government, state government um, on that level, but also our team here on Maui and Amanda on my team and myself and planning and replanning and replanning and replanning throughout the year as you kind of try to figure out where we might net out in January. Um, but then our on-site team and our volunteers and, um, you know, folks that we wouldn't be able to do the tournament without. And everyone just bought into the, the protocols and the, the fact that it was going to be different and it was going to take some extra effort. Um, and shoot, at the end of the day, we put on a wonderful golf tournament. We had uh, a, a Great competition went came went down to a second straight year of a playoff for us, um, and it was it was just great golf to watch. And to your point, Kanoa, you know it's there's not a better backdrop for golf than uh, <laughs> than Kapalua. So you know, as far as not having fans roaming the golf course, of all the courses, this one this one always looks pretty good, no matter who's walking around out there. So I th I thought, yeah, the telecast. I haven't sat down and watched watched the whole thing or anything, but I did catch bits and pieces of it. I thought it came off great. Yeah, it, it looked terrific. I think that's uh, an objective uh, point of view for sure. Um, just to ask you to, to speak candidly about this, what kind of resistance did you face as you were putting this thing together uh, with the heightened concern about 
COVID and, and with the amount of people that are coming in and out of the island of Maui, was there any systemic resistance? Was there, was there any resistance in the form of people who were trying to dissuade you from actually holding this event? You know, I, I wouldn't say there was resistance. I would say it was actually the opposite. I think everyone was trying really hard to make sure that we could hold the event. And that, that starts with the mayor. He's such a wonderful friend of the tournament. Um, he's, he was supportive of us from the get-go. And that, that his support is, is one of the main reasons why we were able to host the event. Um, and, and, you know, we had great support from the governor as well and from some of the folks at the Hawaiian Tourism Authority, John DeFries, um, who helped make sure that, uh, you know, both this week and, of course, they're playing the Sony this week on Oahu as well, um, that, that the road was paved to, to be able to do the event the right way, um, in, in a health and safety safe way, of course. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't really resistance. It was just more the, the overall lingering questions for the, you know, you look at headlines and, and the country and that sort of thing. And, and, yeah, there were some challenges to make sure that we went through the correct protocols to be able to get our players to the island, um, to be able to get the people that work on the telecast to the island because, the, you know, this, the, the pre-testing protocol is, is difficult and it's stringent for a reason. It's to keep everyone safe and uh, educating some people on the mainland that, that weren't used to that level of um, uh, that level of difficultness. I mean, not difficultness isn't the right word. I would say more um, just the high level of needing to go through that protocol. Uh, it was challenging because some of them weren't used to it. They're they're coming from states like Florida, and and their protocols are just quite quite a bit simpler. So get, working through that with, with them. And making sure they understood what they needed to do that was a challenge but we knew that was going to be there and, and everyone shoot we had we had all of our players that that uh that planned on coming they were able to make it here which was great yeah i was kind of curious about that alex you know with, with the fact that you know there, there were a lot of steps to get through to, to to get everybody here the players in particular what, what do you think that sort of says about the event that these you know the vast majority of guys who were eligible to come came and, and were willing to go through those steps to get here and play in this tournament. Yeah, I think that the support of our players and the PGA Tour members is, uh, is at an all-time high for the event right now. Um, and I know we, I've talked about this a couple of other times. Um, and it starts with the support of our sponsor, the, the, um, the commitment they made by doing a 10-year extension last year is a really big signal to the health of the event. And that, that is seen by our players, by PGA Tour players. Uh, they love this place. I mean, the, the golf course is awesome. You're in Maui. Um, you, you, a lot of them, even in a pandemic year, they brought some family members out. It's just a great way to start the year. And when you add that extra level of having, um, you know, that sponsor support, it really starts to pick up momentum. And it's not just sponsor support. It's, it's the community involvement and support as well. Um, and I think all of that kind of rose in the same direction and it allows, or it, it gives players, I think there's, those players talk a lot, right? They're week to week, they're in locker rooms and they're interacting with each other. They're at the airport, they're on flights, they're in meetings together with the player action committee and word of mouth is a big thing. And I think the word of mouth with our membership right now is that you can't miss this event. And then of course the, the level of play was terrific as always, uh, some favorable wind conditions, over sure. the course of the four days. So what would you make of the, the level of these guys out there firing at pins? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, if you, if you give any PGA Tour player a golf course with no wind, a, a field like we've got here, they're going to play really well. I mean, that's just a fact. I don't care what 
I don't care what golf course. You could be playing Shinnecock Hills with fairways that wide, and if there's no wind, somebody's going to go low. Um, so, yeah, with, with no wind, we had some great scores out there, and, and some guys hit some incredible shots. Uh, the greens were fairly receptive. We had a little bit of rain the couple weeks leading up to the event, which softened things up a little bit. But at the end of the day, you look at the leaderboard, and, and the cream really did rise to the top. Harris and Joaquin are both guys that came in actually pretty hot through the fall series. Both of them had played pretty well. Um, and then you had some typical cast of characters on that leaderboard as well. You had Justin Thomas trying to make a run over the weekend. Um, DJ kind of lingered a little bit. Xander was on that leaderboard. Those are obviously our past three champs. So, yeah, the, the, if you look at our list of champions, it's really a great mix of players. But to me, it's always a player that is an overall – has an overall game. And Harris is one of those guys. Great golf swing, great putting stroke. Uh, it was nice to see him back in the winner's circle. Yeah, and it's funny how we have so many playoffs in this tournament. It just, it just seems to happen all the time. And in this particular instance, you have Harris English, you have Joaquin Neiman. These are two guys that in any other year of the tournament wouldn't have even been in the field. They did not win last year. And the Tournament of Champions, the Century Tournament of Champions now, uh, it invites winners from the previous season. So because of COVID, the field was expanded to include anybody that made it to the Tour Championship. Uh, and so I'm wondering... Is that maybe something that would be considered now perhaps going forward, or was that just kind of a one-off deal because of the COVID pandemic? Yeah, you know, we, we framed it up as a one-off deal, um, and, and that's, that's how I'm, I'm, you know, looking towards next year is that we'll be back to our, to our uh, typical qualification criteria of the, the winners on the PGA Tour, and right now we're a field of one of, uh, of Harris English, <laughs> and we're, we'll see who we pick up this next week, and we'll check it out week to week. Um, that being said, there's always conversations that happen at the PGA Tour level on qualification criteria and schedule, um, and that happens at the PGA Tour membership level uh, with our player action committee. So uh, is there a chance they bring something like this up? Maybe. I, you know, that's not really a conversation that, that I'm that close to. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was, I thought, for, for a one-year uh, qualification criteria, it was pretty cool that a couple of those guys uh, had a chance to win. And, you know, it's possible that Harris might be – he might be a nice trivia question for you for forever of the only non-winner to win the tournament. Um, because it just the crazy extenuating circumstances that 2020 and now 2021 have, have brought to us. How different was it for you just in terms of, of the way you normally have to operate while the tournament is being played and, and sort of the business that you have to conduct um, was there any difference there for you, the fact that there weren't fans and there weren't as many of the, the activities on the periphery taking place? Yeah, I mean, it was vastly different. Um, starting with the fact of having, you know, you have a limited number of ticketed guests in one area that you can really easily monitor and control, which is exactly why we did it that way, because we wanted to be able to keep our eyes on it, uh, versus normally you have four or 5,000 people spread across golf course more things are bound to go wrong. Not wrong, but there's just, you have to fix things here and there and all over the place and it takes a little longer to tweak. And so you're dealing with more of those things throughout the week. But really the biggest thing that, that's different was, you know, having our, having Century, our title sponsor, not have their guests and their program for the week. You know, they made the decision a few months ago um, to keep their associates and, and, and their guests back in, in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Uh, for health and safety reasons, which I think was a, a wonderful decision. I'm glad that they, they came to that decision on, on their own. And, um, but yeah, you know, normally we have functions and there's, you know, you do a lot of entertaining and that sort of thing. 
Uh, so there wasn't much of that because, you know, we weren't really allowed to gather. So it was, it was very interesting being life in the bubble for a week was something I, I, something I never thought I'd have to do, but there you go. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you look at century not making the trip and then the first thing they did when they, when they decided not to send their group out here was, uh, they, they said, okay, we're going to save some money by not hosting these people. How can we make a contribution to the Island of Maui? And I'm not sure if you saw, but, uh, they did give $250,000 to the Maui food bank last week. So, I mean, we can't ask for a better title than that when they're not here, they're, they're making, you know, the same impact, if not more than if they would have been here. No, it, it really is terrific, and, and I think all indications, right, that Century just proves over and over again to be such a terrific partner. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, Harris English, right, this guy who's who's off the radar for, for a while, um, and you already ran down some of the big names who were there on the leaderboard, and Colin Morikawa was in the mix as well, local favorite, and then, then of course, it's, it's Harris English and, and Joaquin Neiman who were there, you know, on the, the 18th tee once again in the playoff, and, and Neiman's, what, 22 years old? Uh, I believe he's a, he's I don't think he's kid. older than that, right? A, incredible he, this young kid, and then you got Harris English, who's who's been through the battles, and and a guy who you know, as we mentioned, was was kind of you know off a lot of people's radar, but uh, he went out and, and, and won this thing, and and you know, what does that kind of say about him, and and just the, the the depth of talent that that really exists on the tour any given week? Yeah, the depth of talent on tour is is wild and that's why it's so difficult to win that's what makes our field so special regularly is because winning is tough and so you'll hear anyone say that Harris just said that a few days ago and um I've always been a big Harris fan um he he was one of those really hot young players uh that when he turned professional back in what was it 2011 2012 uh, and burst on the scene with a couple of early wins in his career he was an absolute star at the University of Georgia uh, I was actually in grad school while he was while he was still playing golf at Georgia. So I had a close look at at some of his play, and um, he he he's just I mean, and also that college team was absolutely stacked. He was on that team with Hudson Swafford, who played in our tournament last week. Uh, Russell Henley was another guy on that team who's played in our event before. He's multiple time PGA Tour winner. That team was just absolutely stacked, and Harris was always in my, in my mind the star of that team. So it it was no surprise that he came on to tour early and won. Uh, but then, you know, he had some he had some challenges. And like anybody who's ever played golf, you go through slumps. Um, and I think earning his way into this field, obviously had a great season last year. That's how he made it to the top 30 uh, at Eastlake. And, and, and then for him to then get it done here, it was, it was pretty cool to watch. I love Harris English's golf swing. There's like four or five guys on tour that I just love watching that swing golf club. It used to be like Ernie Els. Like, I just love watching. There's a tempo to it, like a longness. And um, Harris is one of those guys. And so I just love – we have great ball strikers. We have the benefit at this tournament of having great ball strikers win pretty regularly, like a Xander Shoffley, um, great ball striker, DJ, great ball striker, JT, wonderful ball striker. And, and Harris is just another one of those long lines. I mean, even you look back, Sergio back in 02 is a great ball striker. Even some of those guys like Stuart Appleby. I mean, he was known for approach shots and – how he could how he could hit those Jeff Ogilvy same thing, um, so yeah, it's just great to see great to see Harris overcome some adversity and, and get back to winning because I think this could be I, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a really nice season and this was a springboard to it. Yeah, you know a lot of these guys and Sergio, you mentioned it, he played pretty well this past weekend, but a lot of these guys make the trip over to Oahu and the Sony Open. Uh, do do you do you watch that much or do you kind of just turn off golf for a little bit after this week after last week oh, is over, no. right? 
Come on, I'm a, I'm a big golf fan, guys. Come on, I'm watching week to week. <laughs> I, I love, and uh, you know, I've been, I, I was lucky enough to work that tournament a few times. You know, I actually the last one I did before coming out here full time. Uh, so I, I, I enjoy watching that tournament. I think we have 32 guys from our field that are playing in that tournament next week. Huge number. So it should be a pretty strong field there uh, there at Sony. Actually, I do think Ernie Els is playing. I just mentioned him. I think he's playing as well, um, which is great. I, I know he'll head over to do the Champions or PGA Tour Champions event in Walleye the week after that. Um, but, yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm always plugged in. To go to an, early question, an earlier question, I would say the biggest – the biggest change with not having fans on site was not being able to have Cano announcing on the first team <laughs> with no fans. There was no, there, we, we didn't need him. And it's just, it just made me sad. Yeah. I mean, it really took away from the experience. I mean, uh, I was just doing it to myself under my breath, watching television. I was just uh, <laughs> imagining that I was there on that first tee. Um, unfortunately, there was also a little bit of controversy that took place during the tournament. Justin Thomas uh, was heard uttering, a homophobic slur under his breath after missing a short putt. Uh, he would issue a public apology. Um, he played pretty well throughout the tournament. And I think, you know, anybody that knows this guy, to a man it seems, described Justin Thomas as just being one of the classy individuals in golf. Uh, seems to be a very beloved and well-liked guy on tour. Uh, and I'm just wondering what your perspective uh, of this was and 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 – you know, I don't believe you would have any kind of, um, you know, act, uh, participation in the the fallout of it or or the response to it, but just kind of wanted to get your your perception of it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's something that I'm, you know, Justin did a, in my opinion, he, he went on Golf Channel and 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 had a very contrite apology, and um, that's that's sports with live mics. Sometimes you you just you never know exactly what's going to come. You never know exactly what's going to come out, and especially with no fans. And, and I think the mics are picking up more maybe than ever before in all sports. I noticed that watching football, truly. Um, and basketball, it's not having that ambient noise. is It just changes it a little bit. So, um, you know, I, I think Justin handled, handled the response uh, very well. And, um, you know, that, that's obviously something for him to address. Um, and that, that's really our, our big perspective on it. Well, I don't want to bring up yet another negative story, but I think it would, um, you know, we would definitely be doing this podcast a disservice if we didn't ask you, Alex Urban, about the Clemson Tiger football team and the fact that they got spanked by Ohio State in the college football playoff semifinal after Dabo Sweeney, the head coach, was popping off about how Ohio State shouldn't even be in the thing, shouldn't even be top 10 in his last coach's poll. Um, what say you? Clemson alum Alex Urban. Oh, I knew, I knew this was going to come up. Um, all right, I've got a couple of takes. I got a couple of takes on this one. Um, I love my guy Dabo. He was absolutely poking the bear, like a, a lot. I think he was enjoying poking the bear. I think, uh, you know, he's developed a really good relationship with Steve Spurrier over the years. And there, I swear, some of those, I, it felt like it was vintage Steve Spurrier, just needling and needling. And as a fan, I'm like, okay, well, this is. <laughs> if you're going to talk like that, you but you got to win the game. Like that's that's the so you know you you rank Ohio State 11th and then and then we uh we for lack of a better term just got smoked. Um, my dad went to Ohio State, so he was I, he was very excited. Um, and I grew up in Columbus. I don't, I don't know if you know that Kanoa. Um, so I grew up. I, I had a lot of Buckeyes that I grew up with that were uh, 
making sure that I was well aware that they were happy to finally get that one off their the monkey off their back since they had never beaten us before. Um, yeah, I think that our I think that the back end of our defense was just it got exposed pretty badly. And honestly, I am very happy we didn't have to face Devonta Smith and everything that Bama was throwing out. After watching what they just did to then did to Ohio State a couple nights ago, yeah, I'm, I didn't want any part of that. So we'll take an ACC championship. We'll, uh, you know, a top top four finish. I think we finished in the top three. And we'll, we'll head to next year. And our, our new quarterback, DJ Ui Ungalale. Hey, very nice. You got to learn how to pronounce it if he's your guy, you know. Yeah, if you're the executive no, director yeah. of the Century Tournament of Champions at Kapalua, uh, you got to learn how to pronounce the Polynesian names, and that was pretty impressive, <laughs> my man. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but, yes, it still hurts just a little bit. You can't win them all, you know. I, I'm, I'm happy we just have the two we have. And if we, have, if we can add more to that, great. There you go. There you go. That's that's. So you're saying that they wouldn't have necessarily given Alabama a better game than what we saw the Buckeyes give. <laughs> I think them it's hard to say that we would have because I think that the the weaknesses of our team is exactly Bama's strength. They were they would have thrown deep balls all game. You look back at our season and even that first game, one of those first games we played against Wake Forest, they threw for like 350 yards on us, and a lot of them were deep balls. And so if you look back on that, that was it. It was a weakness, and I mean. Smith is just an absolute monster. So I think he's going to be a heck of a pro. You know, there's one other thing that uh, we've been waiting on in our multitude of conversations with you that you promised us a long time ago. And that was that you would unleash the saxophone for us (laughs) at one point in time. Um, We've been waiting. We've been waiting. This is now the second time you've been the guest on our podcast and still no sax, man. What's going on? Well, it's uh, it's funny. I've actually got just to prove musician things. I got a piano over my shoulder here. Oh, okay, okay. Um, we'll settle for that. Uh, well, <laughs> can we get can we get a riff? Can we get a riff here? I'll I'll send you a video. How's that sound? You can. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I put the camera. It's a whole thing. Okay. Um, All right. I don't have a saxophone in the house. I need what I need to do is get it from my folks' house. I need to get them to send it. Okay. I'd be happy. Right. So, I'd be happy so that's the thing. The, the saxophone has to be provided. That's the challenge here. The saxophone has to be provided. I need to. I need to dig one up. That's yeah. okay. Okay. All right. It's just because uh, you know we need a better sax life on this podcast, and so that's uh, that's part of the reason why we want Alex Urban to be, to be a part of it. Uh, Alex, yeah, you are uh, you're the man, and congrats on on another fantastic event. And to do it under these circumstances, I know. Uh, was no easy task. And so uh, congrats to you. Uh, you're a good guy. We, we love the fact that you're a friend of ours and uh, love chatting with you. And we will do it again, I'm sure. Love it. It goes both ways. And I still like you, even though you asked me about uh, <laughs> getting absolutely just whipped in the, na- in the not the national championship, in the, in the quarterfinals, semifinals, whatever number. Yeah, Anyways, yeah. I still yeah. like you guys. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> It'll take a lot more than that. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure being on, and, and thanks for the support. And we had, we had a heck of a year, and we're looking forward to 2022. We'll be watching the Sony this week to see who our second second member of the field is. All right, my man. Take care, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Aloha, guys. All right, thanks once again to Alex. He's a good guy, always makes time for us. Uh, we definitely have enjoyed uh, being able to chat with him uh, in high frequency throughout our time with the radio show as well as the podcast. All right, time now for the post game. And our best and worst. 
brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial, construction, and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit WasteProHawaii.com for services information. All right, what is your best here for this episode of the pod, Jordan? Yeah, my best. I'm going with the alternate broadcasts. Uh, we saw Nickelodeon <laughs> broadcasting an NFL playoff game this past Sunday. And maybe because the game was just so terrible, the Nickelodeon broadcast provided a bit of relief and at least some, some intrigue to the broadcast. I flipped it over from, from the CBS broadcast mid-second half. And I, I love me some Nance and Romo, but boy, my Bears were just stinking up the joint. The Saints really <laughs> weren't that much better. They were just much more talented. Um, and so the Nickelodeon broadcast, where you got like the slime zone, you've got, you know, Nate Burleson was the color analyst on it. And they've got like cartoon uh, graphics coming around. You got SpongeBob between the, the, um, the, the uprights on kick attempts. And, and, you know, they go to Bikini Bottom for, for celebrations after big plays and things like that. I, I thought it was pretty interesting. I thought it was pretty intriguing. Uh, I thought it was great if you got kids, right? It's like, hey, if you want your kid to hang around while you spend three hours in front of a television watching a football game, uh, I thought it was pretty cool that they had that. And then the other alternative broadcast that was earlier in the day on, I believe it was Sunday, it was the ESPN broadcast. And so they did one of their mega casts like they do for the college football national championship game. Uh, but they did it as well for the wild card game between the Titans and the Ravens. And I actually found the broadcast and it was only on ESPN plus it wasn't even on ESPN two but it was the NFL live crew uh Laura Rutledge um Dan Orlovsky Mina Kimes as well as Marcus Spears sort of interspersed with the daily wager guys over in Vegas Doug Kazarian and his crew and so it was you know they, they went back and forth and so you're getting analysis from the NFL live crew you were getting uh statistic analytic updates why the line was moving why the total was moving from the daily wager guys and I found that wildly entertaining and again, I don't necessarily dislike the the regular crew, the Lewis Riddick and Brian Greasy and those guys. I, I find them very entertaining. But the the alternative broadcast was great. That that ESPN it was only on ESPN Plus. The ESPN two had like film room with with uh, Rex Ryan and those guys. It was a little bit different. But the alternative broadcast, I find myself latching onto those for some of the weekend games over the the traditional the traditional uh, model. All right, so that kind of ties into my best, uh, the fact that you mentioned the Ravens-Titans game, and, and my best is Lamar Jackson finally getting that elusive playoff victory, much maligned for the fact that, you know, the Ravens had a fantastic regular season last year and weren't able to get the playoff victory, losing, ironically enough, to the Titans. Uh, and to be able to get that redemption here this year, I love the Lamar Jackson story, a guy coming out of Louisville who had so many doubters, right, including Bill Polian, this multi-time executive of the year in the NFL who basically was saying that Lamar Jackson couldn't play quarterback in the professional ranks and should go in to the draft as a wide receiver. And, you know, a lot of, dare I say, even like coded language when it comes to the discussion of Lamar Jackson, it was very uncomfortable. And so to see Lamar perform in the way that he has and be the reigning MVP uh, and, and, and finally get that playoff victory. I just love that as kind of a, a, redemption story if that's even appropriate to say maybe just more of a a proving the doubters wrong type of story uh, fantastic not to mention I think the Ravens uh, in what was for the most part a fairly underwhelming wild card weekend right there weren't a lot of great games the Browns waxing the Steelers and Ben Roethlisberger looking washed was somewhat interesting uh, but it was fairly underwhelming in terms of the quality of game so I think the Ravens 
certainly proving to be, I would say, aside from the Bills, maybe those are the only two teams that you could suggest from this first weekend of action, with all due respect to the Browns, that really could contend for a Super Bowl title in a loaded AFC, it's looking like. Um, I think that Lamar Jackson story was, was my best. All right, let's switch it over to our worsts. What's your worst? Yeah, my worst, a, a bit of mistaken identity. Um, the New York Times putting out a report, uh, the Biden administration announcing a few more of their selections to serve in roles uh, under new President Biden. Uh, Michael Leach is being <laughs> nominated to be the chief diversity and inclusion director in the Biden administration. And Michael Leach has a football background. He is the former assistant head coach of my favorite team, the Chicago Bears. He worked in the NFL league office as well, part of the labor relations for NFL management council. And then the New York Times added on the little tidbit that he also used to be the head coach of the Texas Tech football team. And so a lot of people, you talk about a little uncomfort, uncomfort. We're like, wait, 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 wait. Mike Leach is going to be in charge of diversity and inclusion? Like that <laughs> Mike Leach? who is now currently obviously the head coach at Mississippi State. So a little bit of eh, faulty reporting there by the New York Times because Michael Leach is not Mike Leach. Very different people, very different look to him. Uh, and so Mike Leach is not getting a role in the Biden administration. Michael Leach, Michael Leach, totally different guy, is getting a role as the director of diversity and inclusion in the Biden yeah. administration. So just, just quick Google. But yeah, New York Times, got a lot of people... Twitter was a little abuzz this morning when folks had to dig deep a little bit and find out whether or not they were talking about the same dude, the pirate or not. So yeah, that was, that was my worst. Oh, fake news. Yeah. I don't think uh, Mike Leach and his ideology would really <laughs> mesh well with the Biden administration, at least based on what we've been clued into. All right. So my worst, uh, we're actually going to go back a little bit to the Brooklyn Nets situation, but specifically Kyrie Irving, Prior to the announcement of this James Harden trade, obviously the big story with the Nets was the fact that Kyrie Irving is kind of like not with the team. He was caught with photos where he was unmasked at a big family party, and so he got into some Pelikia with the league there, and so now they're just not sure when he's actually going to return to the team. Uh, and so it prompted Stephen A. Smith, good old hot takery Stephen A. Smith, uh, to go on national television on ESPN and suggest, in fact, even demand that Kyrie Irving retire. Yes, that's right. He actually went on television and said, because of all of this, Kyrie Irving is proving he's not interested in playing basketball. He should retire. So fast forward a couple of hours and James Harden is announced to be having been traded to the Nets. And Stephen A. Smith goes on national television and says, the Nets now have to win the championship or it's a busted season. So I'm like, oh, wait, so you were just saying that Kyrie Irving had to retire. And now you're saying that it's championship or bust for the Brooklyn Nets. Stephen A doing Stephen A things. That's my worst. Yeah, let's ask the uh, soon-to-only-be 29-year-old who has <laughs> you know, a number of suitors, and obviously the Brooklyn Nets being the latest, who are willing to pay him tens of millions of dollars a year. Like, why, why would he ever retire, right? It's not, it's not like they're demanding he give back his game checks or something like that. We, I joked with Billy Hall in our last podcast. Right? It kind of seems like if you're just not going to show up for work, maybe you shouldn't get paid for those days. But, I mean, it's not like they're cutting him from the team. It's not like nobody wants him. If the Nets were to say, on with you with Kyrie Irving, somebody else is going to sign him for tens of millions of dollars, even if he only wants to show up for work, you know, half the time, three quarters of the time, whatever it is. Retire. Sorry, Stephen A. Sorry nobody's working as hard as you. He's got a new ESPN Plus show that's exclusive to the streaming service. 
plus first take, plus all this other stuff. Like, uh, sorry, we're not all doing 18 different projects, Stephen. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's vintage Stephen A audacity, right? To just be the guy to suggest that any professional athlete to uh, be able to straight-faced say that anybody should retire, to, to make the demand that somebody retires from the professional athletics ranks. Um, that's just, uh, hey, Stephen A, that's why he gets the big bucks, man. All right, so that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. You can hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, at TalkSports808. Thanks once again to Alex Urban for jumping on with us. Jordan, we'll do it again next week. Looking forward to it.